And it's good to see you all here this morning. Um, last week was a pretty intense week for me. It's probably probably the most stressful week of my life up until this point in time. <laughs> it, was, it was a tough week, but God is good. He's merciful. He's gracious. He gets us through it, doesn't he? If you don't mind, I'd just like to have another word of prayer that the Lord would really send his Holy Spirit to speak to our hearts this morning. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for today. We thank you for your many blessings. We thank you for Sabbath. We thank you for peace and rest and what you've done for us. And Lord, I just I just ask for your wisdom and your grace as I speak the words you've been impressing upon my heart. Lord, um, may you be honored and glorified. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, well, they gave me plenty of time this morning, so. We are going to have a Bible study, as usual. <laughs> um, today's Bible study is going to going to go several different places. And today's Bible study starts with the lesson from two weeks ago, <laughs> Sabbath school lesson. Um, as Maddie and I were here early enough to, to participate in the lesson, and something in the lesson just really spoke to me. Um, and I, I, got to, I got to thinking about it and thinking about the issues that were brought up in that lesson. And, and then the Lord started bringing to mind things from my, my Bible study in the past and my current experience struggling with med school and getting ready for tests. And, and really brought home some points that I really want to share with you guys, if I can. Um, I just want to read the introduction from lesson eight in the Sabbath school lesson. And then we'll come back to see if we have more clarity on it. And this is the lesson on Romans chapter 7. Few chapters in the Bible have created more controversy than Romans 7. Concerning the issues involved, the SDA Bible commentary says the meaning of Romans 7 verses 14 through 25 has been one of the most discussed problems in the whole epistle. The main questions have been as to whether the description of such intense moral struggle could be autobiographical, and if so, whether the passage refers to Paul's experience before or after his conversion. That Paul is speaking of his own personal struggle with sin seems apparent from the simplest meaning of his words. Um, it is surely also true that he is describing a conflict that is more or less experienced by every soul, confronted by and awakened to the spiritual claims of God's holy law. 
Now, Bible students differ on whether Romans 7 was Paul's experience before or after his conversion. Whatever position one takes, what's important is that Jesus' righteousness covers us and that in his righteousness we stand perfect before God, who promises to sanctify us, to give us victory over sin, and to conform us to the image of his Son. These are the crucial points for us to know and experience as we seek to spread the everlasting gospel. And so that was the introduction, and it really got me to thinking. You know, Paul's experience before conversion, after conversion, around conversion. But what, what is going on here in Romans chapter 7, and how can we understand this in the big picture? And so I want to start this morning with the big picture. Turn with me to Revelation chapter 12. Revelation chapter 12. Are you there? We'll start in verse 7. And there was what? War in heaven. Michael and his angels fought against the dragon, and the dragon fought and his angels and prevailed not. Neither was their place found any more in heaven. And the great dragon was cast out, that old serpent called the devil and Satan which deceiveth the whole world. He was cast out into the earth, and his angels were cast out with him. And I heard a loud voice saying in heaven, Now is come salvation and strength and the kingdom of our God and the power of his Christ. For the accuser of our brethren is cast down, which accused them before our God day and night. There was war in heaven. There's a great controversy happening, one between Christ and Satan. One in which Satan loses at every step of the battle. And this controversy touches every individual on earth. This great serpent, though, when he was cast out of heaven, he came where? Here to earth. And we, we can find in Genesis chapter 3 the very first promise given after sin. Genesis chapter 3. Genesis chapter 3, starting in verse 14. And this is where God is talking to Adam, Eve, and the serpent. And when he gives the, when he gives the curses of sin, he starts with the serpent. And this is where he gives us this beautiful promise. And the Lord God said unto the serpent, Because thou hast done this, thou art cursed above all cattle and above every beast of the field. Upon thy belly shalt thou go, and dust shalt thou eat all the days of thy life. And I will put enmity between thee and the woman, and between thy seed and her seed. It shall bruise thy head, and thou shalt bruise his heel. Here, this controversy, which started in heaven between Christ and Satan, continues here on earth, but there's a beautiful promise here encapsulated in verse 15. The first thing here in verse 15, I will put enmity between thee and the woman. What is enmity? 
distrust, hatred. Enemies? Opposition, hostile. Opposition, hostile. And then the last half of that verse includes a promise of the woman's seed, a promise of a Messiah, someone who would come and crush the serpent forever. But here in this passage, we have a promise of conflict. We have a promise of conflict between the devil and the woman and her seed. And let me propose to you today that that conflict is a true blessing and one given from God so that we could be safe. That that conflict is actually a vital key component of the Christian life and experience. The seed of the woman, oftentimes the woman represents the church or the people of God, in the Bible at least a pure woman. So God's people will have a conflict with Satan. And this conflict is a key part of the salvation story. Jesus even talked about this. Turn with me to Matthew chapter 10. Matthew chapter 10. And we'll start in verse 34. Think not that I am come to send peace on the earth. I came not to send peace, but a sword. For I am come to set a man at variance against his father and the daughter against her mother and the daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. And of man's foes shall be they of his own household. He that loveth father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And he that loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And he that takes not his cross and follows after me is not worthy of me. He that findeth his life shall lose it. And he that loses his life for my sake shall find it. Here in this passage, Jesus says, I didn't come to send peace, but a sword. But isn't that at conflict with what the angels saying? Peace on earth, goodwill towards men, right? Well, the Bible explains. Turn to John 14, verse 27. John chapter 14, verse 27. But the Comforter, which is the Holy Ghost, whom the Father will send in my name, he shall teach you all things and bring all things to your remembrance whatsoever I have sent, said unto you. Verse 27. Peace I leave with you. My peace I give unto you. Not as the world gives, give I unto you. Let not your heart be troubled, neither let it be afraid. Here, Christ promises peace. Not an external peace, not a peace with the world, 
not at peace with life circumstances, not a prosperous life, not a life filled with, you know, cushiness. You know, he, he didn't promise peace and prosperity in the way that the world likes to think about peace. He didn't promise that there would be no more Middle East conflict. He didn't promise that there'd be external, temporal peace. He promised an internal peace. And he made that clear in John 16, verse 33. Just turn a couple pages over. These things I have spoken unto you, that in me ye might have what? Peace. In the world ye shall have what? Tribulation. But be of good cheer, I have overcome the world. Here he combines the two concepts. He says you're going to have conflict, you're going to have tribulation, you're going to have trials. This is part of life. This is part of following me. But you're also going to have peace. You're going to have inner peace. You're going to have peace of mind. Be of good cheer. Don't get discouraged. Life's going to come at you. It's going to be hard. But be of good cheer. I have overcome the world. This is where the hope in the conflict comes from. In the great controversy, in our personal Christian walk, our hope is centered on none other than Jesus Christ, for he has overcome the world. Amen. Turn with me to Ephesians 6, verse 12. Ephesians chapter 6, verse 12. For we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this world, against spiritual wickedness in high places. Wherefore, take unto you the whole armor of God, that ye may be able to withstand in the evil day. We don't wrestle against flesh and blood. We're not wrestling in the way that, it, that human nations wrestle against each other. We don't battle in a physical battle against you know, evil people. We battle against evil concepts. We battle against evil pictures of God, misunderstandings of his character. We battle against self. We battle against the tendencies that we've not only inherited, but we've also cultivated. I've been keenly aware of that battle in the recent weeks. You know, I, I personally have always lacked solid study skills, planning ahead, organizing myself out so that I pace myself and don't procrastinate till the last minute to complete and finish things. And it, it, it's come back to bite me. Med school is not hard and you can't procrastinate. And so it's, it's been tough. And I have to fight my my cultivated tendency to procrastinate, my cultivated tendency to do what I want to do right now and not worry about what's happening in four weeks, three weeks, two weeks, one week! 
<laughs> you know what I mean? <laughs> I, I've been keenly aware of this battle against self. A battle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the devil who wants me to fail, who doesn't want me to become a doctor, who doesn't want me to have the opportunity to show God's teaching and healing ministry to the world. Devil doesn't want that. And that's been pretty clear to me. And, and, and that's, that's what this struggle's about in the Christian life. 2 Corinthians chapter 10, starting in verse 3. For though we walk in the flesh, we do not war after the flesh. 2 Corinthians 10, verses 3 and 4. For the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but mighty through God to the pulling down of strongholds, casting down imaginations and every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God and bringing into captivity every thought to the obedience of Christ and having in readiness to revenge all disobedience when your obedience is fulfilled. Ah, There's so much in this chapter. I, I like verses 3 and 4 especially. Though we walk in the flesh, we do not war after the flesh. There's even a song for that, for that verse. A really good song. A scripture song? A scripture song. <laughs> yeah. Though we walk in the flesh, we do not war after the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but mighty to God. To the pulling down of strongholds, to the pulling down of strongholds. He is my God, and I will prepare him an habitation. My Father's God, and I will exalt him. The Lord is a man of war. The Lord is his name, and I will exalt him. The Lord is a man of war. The Lord is his name. It's based on the song that Miriam sang in Exodus, and it, like, it switches between Exodus and 2 Corinthians 10. It's a phenomenal song. We should teach it to everyone sometime. And so we have this battle. We don't wrestle against flesh and blood. We have this conflict. And this conflict isn't, well, well, there's conflict in the life of the unbeliever. It's a different conflict. Turn to Romans. Chapter 7. <laughs> Romans chapter 7, verse 7. What shall we say then? Is the law sin? God forbid. Nay, I had not known sin, but by the law. For I had not known lust, except the law had said, Thou shalt not covet. Go to verse, the verse people like to argue over. It's like, for the good that I would, I do not, but the evil which I would not, that I do. It is not the human carnal heart 
that wants to do good. In fact, according to Paul in verse 7, he would not have known what good was if the law hadn't shown it to him. For we know, verse 14, that the law is spiritual, but I am carnal, sold under sin. And then he talks about the struggle. And I think this is the struggle that all of us face. When, when God brings, through our study of the word, the law, scripture, spirit of prophecy, when God brings to our attention that there's something in our life that is out of harmony with God, we have a habit, character defect, something that he'd like to change so that we better represent his character to the world. And this is what happens after that. We find out what we're doing wrong from the word of God. And then we realize, I want to do better. And then we realize, I can't do it on my own. And that's why Jesus says, In this world you will have tribulation, but be of good cheer, for I have overcome the world. How, how did he overcome the world? Luke 4. Let's turn to Luke 4 and get a really quick overview of Christ and how he overcame the world, how he overcame the inherited tendencies. He had no cultivated tendencies to wrong. Luke 4. And I think, you know, there's some that argue that, you know, post-conversion, after you give your life to Christ, life's an easy road. And you don't have to, there is no struggle with sin or there is no battle. I, I want to bring to your attention that here in Luke chapter 4, what immediately precedes Luke chapter 4? Luke chapter 3. And what happened in Luke chapter 3? Hint, verse 21. Now, when all the people were baptized, it came to pass that, John, that Jesus also being baptized and praying, the heaven was opened, and the Holy Ghost descended in a bodily shape like a dove upon him, and a voice came from heaven which said, Thou art my beloved Son, in thee I am well pleased. Luke 4, verse 1. And Jesus, being full of the Holy Spirit, returned from Jordan and was led by the Spirit into the wilderness, being 40 days tempted of the devil. And in those days he didn't, did eat nothing. And when they were ended, he afterward hungered. And the devil said unto him, If thou be the Son of God, do this. And then he goes and he tempts Christ. And those three very difficult, very tough temptations. What, what, what was the chronology here? Here Jesus is baptized, as an example for us, receives an extra measure of the Holy Spirit, although he'd had the Holy Spirit from the very beginning. Receives an extra measure of the Holy Spirit, visible manifestation of the Holy Spirit. Goes into the wilderness, 
and is tempted of the devil and, and goes into conflict with Satan. Let me propose that the conflict of Romans 7 happens only after the quickening of the Holy Spirit. But it's not the end of the story. Follow. Jesus defeats Satan in Luke chapter 4. And then he goes on to proclaim the goodness of God for the next three and a half years. The lame walk. The blind see. The dead are raised again. He teaches on the mountain of, of Olives. He teaches in Jerusalem. He teaches in Nazareth. He teaches all over. He even teaches in Samaria. On the mount, he gives us the Beatitudes. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are the meek. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the sons of God. And he immediately follows the Beatitudes, by the way, with, you know, rejoice and be exceeding glad. When you end, when you what? When they try you, when they accuse you falsely, when, <laughs> when you go through tribulation. It's part of the Beatitudes, too. He's like, rejoice, be glad. He continues to teach the way of the kingdom. He tells them, the disciples, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And then we come to the end of the story. We come to the last great conflict. After teaching his disciples in the upper room, when he had spoken these words, John 18, he went forth with his disciples over the brook Kidron, which was a where was a garden, into the which he entered, and his disciples. And Judas also, which betrayed him, knew the place, for Jesus oft times resorted thither with his disciples. Jesus, knowing all these things that should come upon him, went forth and said, Whom seek ye? Here he goes to the garden. In Matthew, we see what happened in the garden. Starting in Matthew chapter 26. Matthew chapter 26. And when they had sung in him, they went out into the mountain of Olives. Verse 30. Verse 36. Then cometh Jesus with them unto a place called Gethsemane, and says unto the disciples, Sit ye here while I go and pray yonder. And he took with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, James and John, and began to be very sorrowful and very heavy. Then said he unto them, My soul is exceeding sorrowful, even unto death. Tarry ye here, and watch with me. You see, before this, Jesus had been earnestly instructing his disciples 
and conversing with them. But as he got close to Gethsemane, he falls strangely quiet. He had often visited this spot. You know, it says Judas knew he went there oft times. You know, he, he'd gone there many times. He liked to pray. He liked to meditate there. But never had he gone there with a heart as heavy as it was this evening. Throughout his life, he'd always walked in the light of God's presence. Unlike you and me, who haven't always walked in the light of God's presence, Jesus knew no other. He had always walked in the light of God's presence. One in conflict with the men who were inspired by the very spirit of Satan, he could say, He that sent me is with me. The Father hath not left me alone. For I do always those things that please him. John chapter 8, verse 29. But now, he seemed to be shut out from that light of God's presence. Disciples noticed that his countenance was changing. They noticed that he's starting to struggle. He's starting to labor. He's, he's really starting to change like they've never seen him this way before. Every step he takes is now labored. It's like he's working just to put one foot in front of the other. That's why Christ then tells his disciples, sit ye here while I go and pray yonder. Tarry with me, watch and pray, for my soul is exceedingly sorrowful, even unto death. Christ is standing in a different attitude, in a different position from where he had stood before. Here, he was now becoming the sin bearer, the savior of the world. And his suffering can only be described in the words of the prophet, Zechariah. Awake, O sword, against my shepherd, and against the man that is my fellow, saith the Lord of hosts. As the substitute and the surety for sinful man, Christ was now coming under the curse of divine justice. He knew what justice meant. Before this, he'd been an intercessor for others. And right now, he just wished he had an intercessor for himself. Christ feels that his unity with the Father is being broken apart, that, that this connection that has been woven into every fabric of his being is being separated, thread by thread. In the wilderness of temptation, the destiny of the human race had been at stake. Christ was then a conqueror, but now... The devil comes back for the last and greatest struggle of his life. For this, Jesus had been preparing. Everything was at stake. Everything depended on him. You know, and, and the devil really pressed his temptations upon him. You know, he, he said to Christ, you know, what's going to be gained by your sacrifice? You know, how hopeless it must have seemed that men that he was going to die for were so ungrateful. And 
and so unready and unwilling to accept what he, what he meant and what, who he was to them. You know, the devil pressed upon him the fact that the Jewish people and the Jewish leaders, those who professed to follow him, had rejected him. You know, if they'd rejected him, then who would accept him? Who would accept his sacrifice? What good was it going to do? One of his own disciples was right at that moment betraying him. The conflict was terrible, awful. The sins of men weighed heavily upon Christ, and the sense of God's wrath against sin was literally crushing out his life. Look at him. He thinks about the price of a human soul. Is it worth it? He clings to the cold ground as if to prevent himself from being drawn further from God. The chilling dew of night falls on his form and he cries out, Oh, my father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as thou wilt. He longs for sympathy in his suffering. And so he goes back to his disciples and finds them asleep and says unto Peter, What could ye not watch with me one hour? Watch and pray that ye enter not into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. Had he found them praying, he might have been relieved. He might have felt that, you know, had they been seeking refuge in God, that the devil might not be able to prevail against them in the temptation that was about to befall. He would have been comforted that they were, they were staying faithful at least. You know, he would be sacrificing. At least he'd know he was, he was going to be saving them. You know, at least they had heeded his warning and his admonition to watch and pray. But no, they hadn't. So he staggers back to his place of prayer. And he comes to the disciples and, and, and even, you know, here, you know, Jesus had, had told them that they were, gonna, they were going to abandon him. They were going to leave him. But the disciples trusted to themselves. They didn't look to Christ as their mighty helper and counselor. They didn't perhaps even really know how. Um, but Jesus loved them anyways. And the Redeemer had spent you know, entire nights praying for his disciples that their faith wouldn't fail. And now... Um, if Jesus had asked James and John the question, are you able to drink of the cup that I drink of and be baptized with the baptism that I'm baptized with, they wouldn't have, they wouldn't have ventured to answer, we are able. You know, they, they were so willing back then. But at this moment, they knew they were, they, they were beginning to realize their weakness. 
Um, the disciples were awakened by the voice of Jesus, but they hardly knew him. You know, his face had so changed with the anguish. Yet, here when he woke them up and spoke to Peter, even then, in the moment of his greatest trial, he was ready to excuse the faults of others. You see, the spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. Here he is. Even when he needed their support, he excuses the fact that they weren't there for him. You know, this is, this is the attitude that Jesus has. And, and really, truly, when you come to think about it, we should always be looking for the best in others like that. Always assuming the best, excusing their others' faults. This is the way that Jesus was. You know, Isaiah says in Isaiah 52 that his visage, his visage or his, his the, you know, the, his face, the appearance of his face was so marred more than any man and his form more than the sons of men. Turning away, Jesus seeks retreat, falls prostrate, and is overcome by the horror of great darkness. The humanity of the Son of God trembled in that trying hour. He prayed not now for his disciples that their faith might not fail, but for his own tempted, agonizing soul. The awful moment had come. The moment that was to decide the eternal destiny of the world. The fate of humanity was in the balance. Christ might even now refuse to drink the cup apportioned to guilty man. It was not yet too late. He might wipe the bloody sweat from off his brow and leave man to perish in his iniquity. He might say, let the transgressor receive the penalty of his sin and I'll go back to my father. Will he drink that cup? The words fall tremblingly from the pale lips of Jesus. Oh, my father, if this cup may not pass away from me except I drink it, thy will be done. Three times he utters this prayer. Three times has his humanity shrunk from the thought of enduring the weight of the sins of the world and the separation from the Father. A separation so deep, so dark, so dreadful that it would even take his life. He knows that Humanity will be doomed if he doesn't drink it. And his decision's made. He will save man at any cost to himself. Any cost. He accepts his baptism of blood that through him millions might gain everlasting life. He has left the courts of heaven to save that one lost sheep. He will become the propitiation of a race that has willed to sin. 
His prayer now breathes only submission. If this cup may not pass from me except I drink it, thy will be done. Having made the decision, he falls dying to the ground from which he had partially risen. And where were his disciples? Sleeping. There was silence in heaven. No harp was touched. The angels looked on in silence and awe at what they had just witnessed. They wished they could go and rush to Christ's side. They wished they could push back all the forces of, the, of Satan that had pressed upon him. But they couldn't. God had suffered with his son, and the angels beheld the Savior's agony. No way of escape, though, was found for the Son of God. In this awful crisis, when everything was at stake, when the mysterious cup trembled in the hand of the sufferer, the heavens opened, a light shone forth amid the stormy darkness of the crisis hour, and the mighty angel who stands in God's presence came to the side of Christ. The angel came not to take the cup from Christ's hand, but to strengthen him to drink it with the assurance of, his, of the Father's love. Christ's agony didn't cease, but his depression and discouragement left him. The storm had in no wise abated. You know, the terrible scenes of that evening had just begun. But he, he was strengthened to meet the fury. He came forth from the garden, calm and serene. A heavenly peace rested upon his blood-stained face. He had borne that which no human being could ever bear, for he had tasted the sufferings of death for every man. Looking sorrowfully upon his disciples, who are still sleeping, he says, sleep on now and take your rest. Behold, the hour is at hand, and the Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Here Jesus epitomized the ultimate conflict with the powers of darkness. Here he had wrestled with the whole weight of the world hanging in the balance. The stress was so great and the pressure so high that his capillaries leaked blood so that he sweat blood. Then that pressure, so intense, no human being has ever sweat drops of blood and lived to tell about it afterwards. There are at least, from what I understand, eight documented cases of this happening. But none of those cases survived. He's gone through so much turmoil. And at the end of it, an angel comes and strengthens him so that as he goes through this conflict, through this trial, he has what? Peace. So that he could arise and go forth from that garden calm and serene. The victory was assured. He'd already made up his mind. 
Jesus was victorious. And it means everything to us. The sacrifice of the Son of God means everything to us. His resurrection assures us of the hope of a coming resurrection. But his death, his conflict with sin, his victory in the Garden of Gethsemane, in his life in the wilderness, through the years of his ministry, his victory was on our behalf. And it's this victory that Christ wants us to taste, to experience, to know that he's God. Just a couple more verses before we close. 1 John. Turn with me to 1 John. First John, starting in verse in chapter one, so we're all familiar with this. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say that we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. Chapter two, my little children, these things write I unto you that ye what? Sin not. And if any man sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. And he is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. And hereby we do know that we know him if we keep his commandments. He that says, says, I know him, and keeps not his commandments is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But whoso keeps... His words, in him verily is the love of God perfected. Hereby know we that we are in him. He that says he abideth in him ought himself also so to walk, even as he walked. He that says he abides in him ought himself also so to walk, even as he walked. You know, 1 Corinthians 10 says, No temptation has taken you but that which is common to man. And God is faithful, who will not allow you to be tempted above what you are able, but will with the temptation also make a way to escape that you may be able to bear it, just as Christ was given the ability to bear that. You know, Christ, Christ gained the victory to show us how it's done, to show us how to surrender, to give it to the Father, to show us how to walk in communion with God all the time, to show us what it meant to abide in Christ. It may not be my day-to-day experience that I walk with him each moment, but that's what he wants. That's what he wants from me. And 
And chapter 3 in 1 John says, Behold, what manner of love the Father hath bestowed upon us, that we should be called the sons of God. Therefore the world knows us not, because it knew him not. There's that conflict again, conflict with the world. Beloved, now are we the sons of God, and it doth not yet appear. We don't yet know what we shall be, but we know that when he shall appear, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. And every man that hath this hope in him purifies himself, even as he is pure. Whosoever committeth sin transgresses also the law, for sin is the transgression of the law. And ye know that he was manifested to take away our sins, and in him is no sin. Whosoever abideth in him sins not. Whoever sins hath not seen him, neither known him. Little children, let no man deceive you. In here, we see that Christ not only was victorious, but Christ is victorious. And he wants us to walk with him, to surrender to him. And when he reveals in his word to us ways in which we can grow, ways in which we can trust him more, ways in which we may have cultivated habits that don't honor him, don't glorify him, he, he wants us to say, Lord, take me. Not my will, thine be done. I surrender all. And this is what he wants. Romans 8 says it again. Romans 8, verses 15 through 17. Romans 8. For ye have not received the spirit of bondage again to fear, verse 15, but ye have received the spirit of adoption, whereby we cry, Abba, Father, the Spirit itself bears witness with our spirit that we are the children of God. And if children, then heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ. If so be that we suffer with him, that we may also be glorified together. We're his children. His blood-bought possession. He went through with the sacrifice for you and for me. This was his choice so that he could save us. And you shall call his name Jesus, for he shall save his people from their sins. Amen. This is why Romans chapter 7 ends with Romans 8, 1. There is therefore now no condemnation to them which are in Christ Jesus, who walk not after the flesh, but after the Spirit. For the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus hath made me free from the law of sin and death. For what the law could not do through the flesh, God sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh, and for sin condemns sin in the flesh, that the righteousness of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not after the flesh, but after the Spirit abiding in him, walking connected to Christ. Hebrews 12. And this is the last verse. Hebrews chapter 12, 
Wherefore, seeing we also are compassed about with so great a cloud of witnesses, everyone in Hebrews 11, chapter 11, all the greats of faith, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which doth so easily beset us, and let us run with patience the race that is set before us, looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is set down at the right hand of the throne of God. For consider him that endured such contradiction of sinners against himself, lest ye be wearied and faint in your minds. Don't give up. Don't be discouraged. Consider him. Ye have not resisted unto blood, striving against sin. This is a direct reference to Gethsemane, where Jesus resisted till he sweat drops of blood. I've never been to that level of struggle. I've given in much, much more easily than that. <laughs> and I have a feeling most of us <coughs> have know what that's like. Here, Paul says, don't give up. Don't be discouraged. Look to Jesus. He overcame. In the Garden of Gethsemane, he was victorious. You don't even have to go through what he went through. You, you have not resisted unto blood against sin. He's provided a way of escape much easier for you than it was for him. And ye have forgotten the exhortation which speaketh unto you, my children, my son, despise not the chastening of the Lord, for whom the Lord loves, he chastens. Now no chastening for the present seems to be joyous, but grievous. Nevertheless, afterward, it yieldeth the peaceable fruit of righteousness unto them which are exercised thereby. Wherefore, lift up the hands which hang down, and the feeble knees, like the way the ESV puts it, strengthen your weak knees. <laughs> and make straight paths for your feet, lest that which is lame be turned out of the way, but let it rather be healed. Follow peace with all men and holiness, without which no man shall see the Lord. And thus the story comes to the conclusion when we get to see the Lord. The struggle started with Satan in heaven. Struggle was continued in Eden, and we were given the promise of struggle. Struggle to be a blessing. Struggle to work to the refining of our characters. But let patience have her perfect work. You know, count it all joy when you enter temptation, my brothers. But let patience have its perfect work, that ye may be perfect and entire, wanting nothing. Jesus showed us what living a life connected to God is like. One full of blessing to others. One in which we can have peace of mind. Even though the storms may hurl their fury at us. Jesus showed us what it meant to be victorious. And Jesus is still victorious. The voice that said, peace be still and calm the waves over the Sea of Galilee can speak into the storms of our lives and calm 
give us calmness and serenity that we never could have had any other way. This is what Jesus wants for us. He wants to give us that peace inside. I want that peace. I want to live connected with him. Even though the trials may come, not to be discouraged, but to be of good courage, of hope. For he has overcome the world. Amen. So now, I just want to close with a word of prayer. Thanking God for his sacrifice and what it means for us and thanking him for the blessing of trials so that we can learn to walk more closely with him. I know I've, I'm thankful for the trials even though I've been through Last week was the most stressful week of my life. But I'm thankful. I really am. Because he is good. And he brings us through. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for the gift of your son. Thank you for the blessing of trials. Thank you for the enmity that you place between your children and the devil. One which means we have conflict. We have conflict against temptation, conflict against self. But we war not after the flesh. The weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but mighty to God. Lord, you've given us the promise of strength. You've given us your word. And Lord, we just want to surrender all to you. We want to give you our lives, give you our hopes, our dreams, and Father, please just grant us the peace and the strength to follow you come hell or high water. Lord, you've been so good to us, and we want to thank you. In Jesus' name, amen. amen.